0: Thank you, Anne. Can't have too many Anne's in church. Many Anne's make light work. (laughs) (laughs) Thought of that myself. (laughs) Gets worse. Okay, I want us to pray before we um, uh, start uh, looking at this passage. Father, may this uh, time be an encounter with you, one to one. We pray that you'll strip away uh, anything that could distract us. Pray that I may be hidden. Pray that your word may come through. uh, Because that's what uh, gives us the key to just about everything. Well, not just about, uh, to everything in life. So be real to us and speak to us, heart to heart, person to person, this morning. Amen. We come to chapter 2 now in Philippians and um, uh, Paul gets down to a bit of business about uh, uh, um, instructing people and today the theme of joy is continued but it has a particular angle to it which is that joy comes from being united, part of a team. I guess many of you here will have had a working experience or a relationship experience where Uh, Things have been absolutely great and it's not just because of the task, it's because of the people that you're working with. Everything goes together and it's smashing. And the same task can be absolute murder if there's a lot of infighting going on. I I don't know if it's uh, just me, but I I haven't noticed Tom talking about West Ham quite so much, so I feel I ought to do that. I put it down to this. that Two weeks ago, he was talking about the diocesan uh, vision, and when he heard that they had 12 goals, he thought he ought to change his allegiance from West Ham, who hasn't had 12 goals for goodness knows how long. (laughs) But you know, when things go wrong in a team, when there is toughness outside that's when the team either pulls together or pulls apart. And if we want one verse from this passage that uh, is the sort of the key which we will unpack, it's verse 2, because Paul says, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. It's not a bad strapline for us, is it? Look at it again, be like-minded having the same love, not necessarily loving the same things, but the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now we don't know whether or not Philippi, where this church was based, had a problem with disunity. It doesn't say anything, it doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, you're having a trouble, you need to be united. Uh, But there's uh, one or two hints that this might be the problem. Last week we were looking at the end of chapter 1 where he says this in verse 27, Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. So there could have been a problem in Philippi, but it could be that Paul simply knows that disunity is the greatest danger to a healthy, effective church. Disunity is drowns out the gospel good news and I think that's a message for us to be aware of today. Being united is an imperative running through the Bible. It starts in Genesis and we shall come back to this image of the Garden of Eden uh, time and again as we're looking through this passage. The Garden of Eden was the place where everything was in harmony. Adam and Eve were one together they walked in the garden with God. You can almost see the butterflies flying around and the birds tweeting. It was a delightful place. And disunity, which came from sin, was uh, uh, the, uh, brought an end to that. Uh, we see it in Jesus' uh, prayer for the church in John chapter 16. A long prayer in which his key theme is, may they be united because he knows that if not united, then they will not be able to be effective. He said in Mark chapter 3, a house divided against itself cannot stand. It's the enemy within that will be our downfall, not those out there. When we're under difficulty from outside, we may well come together. But if that difficulty challenges who we are, Challenges what's important to us, then we start looking for scapegoats within our own congregation. It's the leadership, it's the music, it's the uh, absence of this, that, or the other which we used to have, or which we should have, or which we've seen in some other church. It's all very well being successful, but when we're under pressure, then that tests our unity and we need to be alert. Now some people, some people argue that unity is so important it's worth paying any price for it because to be disunited is just so bad. But it's not unity at any price. There are some fundamentals that we as Christians need to hold to. We're not just going to go along with, the, with what seems popular or what seems successful because it does there are fundamentals. If you want an illustration of that, look back to Genesis chapter 11 where the Tower of Babel story is told. If you remember that story, uh, the people who spoke all one language were working together in unity but for a purpose which did not glorify God. They wanted to build a tower which would reach up to heaven and reaching up to heaven signified challenging God's supremacy. Unfortunately, history is littered with examples of disunity and infighting, fracturing the church on much less important issues than the fundamentals of the faith. The denominations today, can we all remember why we're different from other denominations? No, of course we can't, because they have become unimportant in many cases. And church splits too, often the most thriving churches are the ones where it's not a problem from outside, it's something that happens within. There's some sort of problem which gets within, the house becomes divided, it is no longer effective in being the demonstration of what the Garden of Eden intended us to be, living in harmony. I've worked with the Acorn Christian Healing Foundation for many years, and it's a sad fact that one of our most demanded programs is called Healing Wounded Churches. Churches that either in the current year have got problems, or who've had historic problems which have been buried, and people have even forgotten what the cause was, but they they fracture the church. And I think we should be very... Uh, we should thank God for the churches together in Camberley not being at each other's throats. They accept that people will ebb and flow. It's not, it's not a, um, a league table. How many people have you got? How successful are you? They are supportive together because of the importance of being united in witness. Now these splits that we talk about are too often not on fundamentals of the faith. More often they're on far less lofty issues. And sadly Christians have a pretty impressive track record of falling out with one another. Many of you will have heard this story of the... Um, uh, the shipwrecked man who was eventually saved uh, and he was there living on the um, uh, island on his own and uh, when the ship came in they noticed that he built various buildings and they said, oh there's three buildings there what are they all about? He said, well that's the one where I live that's the church I attend and that's the church I used to attend (laughs) we will divide so easily And I suspect that in heaven there will be both organs and drum sets. I suspect that you will sit on seats that are both wooden and upholstered. And unfortunately, the early church was prone to these sorts of divisions too. Matters of no significance. And why should this be? Well, Paul puts it down to this. We're too interested in ourselves Look at verses 3 and 4 where he, he uh, lists either negatively or positively four things that are likely to lead to disunity. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, counting ourselves better than others and looking after our own interests first. One four-letter word sums them all up. Self. And when self becomes the most important thing, Unity is impossible and joy is lost. So, put another way, it's when we are so insecure that we need to look after the self that things start to go wrong. When we need to be proved right or to get our own way because the alternative challenges who we are. We're out. Side, the Garden of Eden there's nobody to look after us we need to look after ourselves when people don't give us the status that we think we deserve when the causes that we identify with don't prevail when our self worth and our security are determined by the circumstances around us And when that's gone, we are gone, because we're too closely associated with it. We have a phrase in English which says, under the circumstances. How are you today? Well, under the circumstances, okay. Christians are called not to be under the circumstances. Of course we're affected by them, but they shouldn't determine who we are. And it has been like that since the Garden of Eden, from the security of being friends of God, protected by him, to being alone in the world where no one will look after us unless we do so ourselves. And we are not immune from living outside the Garden of Eden. So Paul will address the issue, how can we achieve the goal of selflessness, which is so essential for us to be united, when being selfish is part of our human nature. How can we do it? How can I let others have their way without feeling downtrodden or worthless or angry or resentful or insecure? How can this be? Well, the answer is when we find our sense of worth in something other than our circumstances and the esteem in which others hold us when we stop relying on our past successes or our present status or our future prospects. Those are the things which define most of us. They define me, I must say. And I need to hear this message myself. Now some people can achieve and measure of stability because they've had stable upbringings, they've had good experiences, and they are able to distance themselves from issues where there's conflict without feeling personally threatened. Other people have had really hard lives, which mean that their tipping point is at a much lower scale. And not to be smiled at can make them feel like they've been rejected. But whether you're in one category or the other, or somewhere between the two, none of us as human beings can be sure that in all circumstances we're able uh, not to be battered by life. All of us need something with deeper roots to take us through the tough times. And Paul has an answer for it. And it's in verse 5. He says, Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, our example and model of humility. And Paul quotes here an early Christian hymn. He may have written it himself, we don't know. But one of the, this is a little side issue, but one of the things that just amazes me, that this letter was written in about A.D. 61. Jesus died in A.D. 33. Less than 30 years after this man from Galilee had died, he is being treated as God. Just think back 30 years you know, and think of people that you respect then or over that period and you can find something wrong with them, no doubt. But this person, this man from Galilee, was recognized as God. And these verses are wonderful. I almost see them like some sort of musical scale. Here is Jesus who was equal with God and he came down to be a human being. He didn't just come down to be a human being. He came to Galilee, which was a really dead-end place. We think of it as a holy place now, which it is holy. It was really the back of beyond. I can't think of a current-day parallel because I'll offend somebody by referring to their hometown. (laughs) But it really was a dead-end place. And he came to that. And he lived amongst these self-important busybodies who knew everything. And he washed their feet. He took the disgust that they had and he lived with it. And so the scale comes down. None of us can have been that high. None of us will be that low. And then what happens? Then God raises him up to a place where he is, if it's possible, even greater than he was before. I know theologically that's not possible, but it says everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth will praise him as being God. So what a wonderful example. How could he do this? Yeah, this is a wonderful uh, a phrase. It says, he did not cling to equality with God. Some of it, some translations say didn't grasp it, but grasp doesn't quite come to because grasp is trying to get there. He already had it, and he didn't cling to it. Why didn't he cling to it? Because what made him know his value was not the fact that he had equal status with God. It was the fact that God the Father loved him. Remember the baptism? The beginning of his ministry? What truth did he need to remember over those three years of really tough ministry? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And that's why he was not worried by the self-important nobodies in this backwater of Galilee. Because what was important to him? was the fact that he was his father's son. He was loved. And it took him even to death on a cross. So he's our example, but he's much more than our example. We don't need an aspiration out there. We need help to get there. And he can take us to that same place of peace and security, back to the Garden of Eden. He can take us there, whatever our circumstances That's why we talk about being in Jesus. It's not just a Christian phrase. It means that we're actually riding on his coattails. What he did, he is enabling us to do. That's why in communion, we actually take the body and blood symbolically because we're associating with him, not just in saying, we'll do it with you, Jesus, but saying, you've done it. Please take us with you. And when we put our faith in him, we too are brought back into the Garden of Eden. And David, I think the psalmist, had this in mind. When he used to refer to God as my rock, my fortress, my stronghold. What does that mean? He lived a turbulent life, but he knew that the thing that really made him strong was the fact that God was the rock, the bedrock of his faith. And it's this confidence in being secure because we are loved unconditionally that binds us to one another, that allows us to take the differences that we have with other people and say, that's not going to create a division between us because I'm rooted in something much deeper. Not making me superior, I'm rooted in something which is the Father's love. And that in turn gives us joy. Just as we come to a close, there's a word of warning about this as we finish. This sort of humility which makes unity possible and leads to joy does come at a price. It certainly did for Jesus. He didn't win this humility uh, uh, cheaply. And there have been two incidents to me, I'm not going to tell you the details, they're not relevant really, two incidents in the week or so that I've been preparing this word, which have been like a lesson to me that it has to be applied and there is a cost to it. Firstly, there was somebody who was very close to me who was treated badly by someone who should have known better. And then I had a letter from somebody about something that I was really quite pleased with what I'd done, which seemed to be questioning some of the things that i was proposing and what was my first reaction well i hadn't read my sermon by then so i <laughs> my my first reaction was to get up to the barricades to jump to defense i am being attacked whether it's me or somebody i identify with and i must treat this head on and then i stopped and i read my sermon And I realized that actually it's an issue out there that needs to be discussed. But it's not about me, because what makes me me is the fact that the Father loves me. And so I can cope with the differences. And we may not agree about how the issue should have been dealt with or about the issue in the letter. But it's not going to cause a division between me and those people who are involved. Who I am is more than what I stand for. I am the one whom Jesus Christ gave his life for and I can stand back from this and yet not be damaged or diminished or feel crushed by it because I know who I am. I'm loved by Jesus. So let's apply this to our church and ourselves. And first of all, how are we going to define our success as a church. Let's see this on the screen. Are we going to define ourselves as a church by our successes and our shortcomings? Because if it's by our successes, then we'll be proud. And if it's our shortcomings, then we will uh, be full of self-criticism. Or are we going to judge our fellowship here by our relationship with Jesus? We are the redeemed people of God. Regardless of the circumstances, that's what really counts. And then for me personally and for you personally, three questions for us to reflect on as this sermon comes to an end. Am I secure in the Father's love? Do I really know that what makes me the person I am is that God loves me? And if we can answer that positively, then you probably know the answer to the next question, which is, can I dare to give way to other people without my shoulders turning down and feeling I've lost? And am I an agent for unity or for discord? This morning Pam and I were reading in our uh, 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 devotions some verses from Lamentations. And I want to just end with this because I think it's really very relevant. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. That's so cheerful to end with. Yet... This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Amen.